Hello and welcome to Sci-Section. My name is Dreen Anthony Pillay and I'm a journalist for Sci-Section Radio Show broadcast on the CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We're here today with Dr. Kristen Lauren, an Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Of course. To start us off, could you provide a quick background about yourself? Uh, I um, am Canadian, grew up in Montreal, uh, fell in love with psychology when I was an undergrad who thought I wanted to study health sciences, and I have not looked back. Awesome. So what would you say is your primary focus in research? Uh, in my research, this is kind of a constantly evolving question I ask myself because I find that I have so many interests and sometimes it's hard to see kind of what the thread that connects them is. But recently I've been thinking about it in terms of um, I'm interested in divides. So for example, the divide between the rich and the poor in the society that we live in, uh, or the divide between liberals and conservatives in all kinds of different countries and political contexts, um, and the divide between you know, what a sort of a perfectly rational um, person or brain might believe and the things that we sometimes choose to believe that are totally not rational or totally not based on the fact. So all those, all those divides, trying to understand what causes them, how we uh, can bridge them, um, I would say is what I am interested in these days. Mm -hmm. And I think that through your work, you definitely question a lot of things and you have created a lot of provoking publications. For example, your past work, Motivational Accounts of the Vicious Cycle of Social Status, an integrated framework using the United States as a case study was very interesting. So could you go over the main concepts you wanted the reader to take from this publication? Yeah, so when we uh, started thinking about this, what we realized was that um, there's a big divide in terms of how people understand uh, what I'm going to call the intergenerational transmission of wealth. So the fact that people who are born into families that are relatively poor tend to grow up to be relatively poor themselves. And so there's sort of one set of ideas that says the reason that happens is because the system is broken. So when you're born poor, it kind of doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't climb out of that. And then there's another set of ideas that says, no, 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 the system's not broken at all. Um, something you might call the American dream, even though we're in Canada, is alive and well, right? People who try hard get to the top. People who don't try hard stay at the bottom and, and there's no problem. And so our contribution, I think, with this paper was to make uh, bring some nuance to that um, disagreement and say that actually we think one of the ways that the system is broken is that it makes it really hard to even try if you're at the bottom to try to get to the top and what we mean by that is that the the context of poverty so the context of growing up um, and being a child and then being a teenager and then being a young adult from a family that's relatively poor it undermines your motivation to try to achieve status to try to get rich to try to kind of climb the social ladder um, in really systematic ways. So we basically, in the paper, we go through um, some examples of how that works. And so I can give you a couple here. Uh, of course, feel free to stop me at any time if I'm just kind of droning on. But uh, so one, one way that this works is you can imagine through stereotypes, right? So we have a lot of stereotypes about how the poor are dumb and lazy and the rich are like really competent and, and driven. And those stereotypes get have a way of becoming internalized. So if I'm a kid in a classroom where my teacher is um, 
holds those stereotypes and kind of treats people who are from a, a poor background differently than students who are from a wealthier background, kind of reinforcing that message. At the end of the day, I might start to think, well, you know, maybe the teacher's right. Maybe I am kind of not as smart, not as driven, don't have as much competence as other people. And if I think that about myself, then it kind of makes it less worthwhile to try to, you know, get a really um, prestigious, fancy education or a prestigious, fancy job that could kind of help me um, raise my standing in life. Mm -hmm. um, another way you can think about this working is uh, if you grow up poor versus you grow up rich, you grow up in a really like geographically different space in a physically different space, right? So if you're growing up poor, you're going to see a lot more examples of people in your neighborhood, people who are like you, not getting ahead, right? Working really hard and just kind of getting stepped on, stepped on, stepped on um, by the system and by bad luck because they don't have a lot of resources to fall back on and things like that. And so you're going to come away with a sense that the world is just not that fair. Whereas if you grow up rich, you don't, you just don't see as much of that, right? What you see is, is things going really pretty well for people, people being rewarded when they should and people um, getting ahead when they're when they're, when they're trying hard because the only people you're seeing are other people like you. And once again, that idea that the world is not fair, that we think the context of poverty sort of um, convinces you to hold and maybe, maybe kind of accurately, whereas the context of wealth kind of protects you from having to see, seeing that the world isn't fair um, is also really demotivating, right? If, if the world isn't fair, then there's no point in me trying hard. We go through a bunch of examples like that um, of, of research that's shown kind of how the context of poverty um, undermines these beliefs that are really critical to, to supporting a motivation to try to, um, you know, achieve a higher status in the world. And that we argue that that's a kind of an, an often overlooked um, factor, right? So if you see someone who's poor, who's not really trying to get themselves out of poverty, the temptation is to think, oh, like what a lazy person, good thing, you know, the system is working and they're still poor. But we're saying, no, they're not inherently, there's not anything inherently different about that person than about another person. It's their context that's undermining their motivation and causing that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely something that we can all take a step back and think about. And another item of your work that I really liked was the corporate personhood lay perceptions and ethical consequences. And it discusses that people allocate greater ethical responsibilities to corporations, but not to humans. And it was really interesting to think about. So what was your inspiration for your work on this? So with that paper, we were um, just inspired by kind of the how common it is for uh, corporations to either make ethical mistakes or try to, you know, make up for their ethical mistakes or put in place programs that they're trying to get kind of ethical points for, right? Like diversity hiring programs or, um, you know, green energy type programs. And we wondered, you know, how seriously do people take these kinds of efforts at being ethical, right? Do people see, look at a company and see them, let's say, trying to sort of donate some of their profits to an environmental cleanup um, initiative? And do they think like, wow, like what a great corporation, they must really care about morality? Or do they think more cynically, oh yeah, you know, there they go, they're just kind of out to get our our goodwill and our and ultimately our you know brand loyalty or whatever it is that they might be after and what we thought was that one key um way to think about this is to think about whether people when they're looking at that are they thinking oh look at that person who made that decision for that company or are they thinking oh look at that company as a kind of um big 
conglomerate sort of entity. And what we found was that when people are uh, thinking about, oh, look at that person who made that decision on the behalf of that company, we think that that decision is really moral. We think that that decision reflects morality. We think that that decision is something that, um, uh, you know, means that basically the person is a good person. Whereas when we, when we think, oh, look at that sort of conglomerate company that made that decision, that's when our cynicism kicks in. We're not really equipped to think of conglomerate companies as sort of having moral values. And so when we think it's the conglomerate company that made the decision, it doesn't really occur to us like that it could have been done for moral reasons. We assume it must have been done for, um, you know, self-interested reasons or things like that. Mm -hmm. And through all of these researches, what do you think is the most intriguing thing you have learned? Well, I'll talk about something that uh, we've learned more recently that actually doesn't have anything to do with either of the papers you just asked about. So hopefully that's okay. Yeah. One research question that we have asked ourselves lately is uh, looking at political divides, right, between liberals and conservatives or, or on specific issues like are you pro-life or pro-choice or do you think you know, there should be a carbon tax or there shouldn't be a carbon tax or all these kinds of issues that really divide us. One thing that past research has uh, re repeatedly found is that people do not want to hear from people they disagree with, right? So if I am pro-carbon tax, I don't want to talk to people who are anti-carbon tax. I don't want to read something that somebody who's anti-carbon tax has written. I, you know, think that they're wrong. I think their beliefs are illegitimate and I don't want to um, engage with them. And that's sort of part of what drives the growing polarization that we're seeing um, in our society today, where people are just kind of more and more, uh, you know, sticking in their own groups and the, and the gap between the groups is growing. And so the question that we had was, okay, so people aren't willing to, to bridge the divide between them and their opponents themselves. They don't want to go talk to their opponents themselves. But what if one of their friends does it? Like, what if one of their own political allies says, listen, guys, I'm on your side, but I'm going to go talk to those people over there who are against the carbon tax. I'm going to figure out where they're coming from. We thought, what we thought based on all the literature was that we would look at that person or people would look at that person and think, what a traitor, right? You're going to go talk to the other side. You think that they have a legitimate belief that's possible for you to understand. You think they're not just bad people. Now I'm really suspicious of you. Now I don't even know if you're on our side. Now I don't even know if you know, if I can trust you, let alone those other guys. But instead, what we found, and, and we had to do this study like over and over and over again before we believed it, but we finally have had to accept it. What we found is that people really like that. So even though people themselves, if I, let's say I'm pro-choice, I don't want to go talk to people who are pro-life. If my friend who's pro-choice does that for me, even if, even if by implication, he's sort of suggesting, well, maybe they kind of have a point, maybe some of their beliefs are actually well-founded and they have reasons for believing what they believe. I really like it when he does that. I really approve of that. And I actually don't like people who do what I myself do. And so that was really um, surprising to us because it, it, you know, it gives us a, a, a way forward. It gives us kind of like a glimmer of hope that maybe um, we can sort of try to bridge some of this, this partisanship, this polarization by, um, by you know, advertising this research and telling people, hey, your friends are really gonna like it if you do this. Your friends are really gonna like it if you're willing to take this step and be brave and go talk to people you disagree with. Um, and we think maybe that can um, you know, be a force for, for maybe some good in the world. Mm -hmm. And for our final question, what made you interested in pursuing research on all these topics? I mean, I'll just take it back, I guess, to what, when you asked me about my background, mm -hmm. like the reason I wanted to uh, 
study health when I was starting my undergrad degree was that I really, you know, I wanted to learn about myself. And I, I thought the best way to do that was to learn about my body, hence the study in health. And then I discovered psychology and I realized, wow, like this is, this is even more about me than I, than the body, right? The mind, understanding the mind and how that works, that's even more going to let me understand myself and who I am. And so I guess what you would, what I would have to then admit is that my initial motivation for, for studying psychology and, and being interested in all these questions is just like a really selfish, you know, desire to understand me and where my thoughts come from and where my feelings come from. But, you know, as I've gotten more and more, uh, you know, wrapped up in this field, I can see so many other reasons to do it too. And like trying to understand, I, I actually think of it more now as, as trying to understand the world that we're living in and where we're headed. And sometimes it feels a bit scary. Sometimes it feels like things are, you know, are just always getting worse. And so trying to understand, you know, why, why that might be happening and how we might be able to change course um, is something that inspires me more now than I would have known it would when I started. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So that brings us to the end of the interview. Thank you again for joining me today. We're happy to. And that's it for this week's Sci section. Make sure to check our podcast available on global platforms for all our latest interviews.